Hi, I'm Kanika, and you're listening to That's Total Mom Sense, the podcast, where I interview public figures on their life lessons in parenting, legacy, and built-in sixth sense. Hey, what's up? I'm Kelly Rowland, and you're checking out That's Total Mom Sense. Hi, this is Chelsea Clinton, and my experience on That's Total Mom Sense was fantastic. It's me, Bobby Brown. Can't wait to share my story. Thank you to my guests, brand partners, community, and you for making the show possible. Episodes release every Thursday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can join my tribe by logging on to thatstotalmomsense.com and by following me on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at Kanika Chadha Gupta. Now let's dive in to today's episode. Is your little one starting daycare and you have to label all their items? Do you need to keep track of all the water bottles at home? Do you want to help your toddler know left from right on their shoes? Look no further. Enter Name Bubbles. Founder and President Michelle Brandris launched Name Bubbles as a way to help parents stay organized. After her experience of sending her son off to daycare only to discover half the things she packed for him didn't return home, she resorted to the tape and permanent marker method. To her dismay, the tape either peeled or fell off in the dishwasher. This quick fix solution didn't cut it. And with her son's severe nut allergy, she knew she needed to keep track of his things. The outcome? She discovered a new way to label. And NameBubbles.com was born. Today, it's been more than 15 years in the business. NameBubbles is loved by parents worldwide and parent-owned and operated. The brand ensures it's non-toxic through third-party testing, and the labels are dishwasher safe, laundry safe, microwave safe, and freezer safe. I know my kids especially love the unicorn and dino designs. I appreciate that all their steel bottles have labels that remain intact, and laundry is a breeze since the names don't wash off. Thank you, Name Bubbles, for keeping me and my household and kiddos organized. Use my code MOMSENSE to receive 25% off at namebubbles.com. The code is MOMSENSE, M-O-M-S-E-N-S-E, to receive 25% off at namebubbles.com. Happy labeling! Today is going to be a much-needed, awkward conversation. Puberty. How can we deal as parents? How do we prepare our kids? Cara Natterson, MD, is a pediatrician and New York Times bestselling author. Vanessa Kroll-Bennett is a puberty educator and writer. Together, they host the Puberty Podcast, Run Order of Magnitude, the leading brand dedicated to flipping puberty positive, and they wrote the book, This is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained, and it was published by Rodale Books in October of 2023. Cara and Vanessa can be found on Instagram and TikTok at spilling the puberty. Perhaps their biggest credit, however, is that between them, they parent six teenagers. Kara and Vanessa, welcome to That's Total Mom Sense. Thank you. Thank you. We're so happy to be here. My palms are sweaty already. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just, I, I haven't really broached the subject because my kids are six, my twins, and then my younger one is five. And, you know, I I feel like I'm still wiping butts and wiping tears. (laughs) It's just, it's never ending. Kanika, don't worry. Even as they get older through puberty and beyond, you are still wiping butts and wiping tears, (laughs) either literally or metaphorically. So no worries on that front. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It really never ends then. Um, but no, I think it's, it's important that at any phase of parenting, we need to be 10 paces ahead. And it's like, what, what is around the bend? And this is something that I think is really timely for not only the parents of tweens and teens, but those that have younger kids too, because puberty is starting much younger. And actually, before we go there, tell us a little bit about how you got into this line of work. Well, I'm a pediatrician and I was in practice for many years and I ended up leaving in 2008 
frankly, because I had young kids and my husband was in medicine as well. And I knew everyone else's children and I didn't know my own. And that was enough for me to kind of take a minute and say, what am I doing? And is it working for me? It was not. So I flipped Mm. into a writing career. I wrote mostly parenting books at first, but I ended up falling into American Girl, the doll company. They are also publishing house and they published a book starting, uh, the first edition came out in 1998 called The Care and Keeping of You. The Care and Keeping of You is sort of like a puberty Bible for kids who are eight to 10. It's the most incredible book. And I used to tell all of my patients about it. And lucky me in 2011, I got to help rewrite The Care and Keeping of You. And I got to start to expand the line of books so we have now the mm. older book, Karen Keeping of You Too, very creatively named, and boy books like guy stuff. And as I was traveling the country, meeting people from all over, and as my kids were going into their own puberty, all there was for kids and their parents who were going through puberty was this little book. And there were a few other books, but there was nothing else. And so in 2020, we launched Order of Magnitude, which is a company that is aimed at flipping puberty positive. And we do it with product. We make all sorts of product that makes puberty comfortable. And we have tons of content across lots of different platforms. And I get to work with Vanessa all day, every day, getting puberty content out into the world. Oh, that's amazing. And I mean, it's just, it's such a um, service that you're providing families. So I come at it from a completely different angle. I am not a doctor, (laughs) which will become eminently clear to anyone listening. I got into the puberty business because I started a company called Dynamo Girl, which had a mission to use sports to build girls' self-esteem. So we ran sports classes all over the tri-state area and coupled them with social emotional learning to help build girls' self-esteem. And pretty quickly, we noticed that our second and third grade girls in our classes were in puberty. A bunch of them were in puberty. And we thought, huh, that's unexpected. And then we did some research and realized, actually, that's totally normal, quote unquote, normal. You'll know how we feel. You'll you'll hear soon how we feel about the word normal. So we started running puberty workshops in New York and L.A., and got to see how hungry families were for information about puberty. I was introduced to Cara, and we started our podcast, The Puberty Podcast, which is all about caring for kids between 8 and 18. But we love alliteration, so we needed to call it The Puberty Podcast, not the like caring for kids between 8 and 18, because that's much (laughs) less catchy. And so the book, it was really born of doing that podcast and speaking to all different experts from everyone from neuropsychologists to mental health providers to pediatric endocrinologists um, to help understand the science behind today's modern puberty and to give adults tons and tons of reliable information in order to care for the kids in their lives. Yes. Oh, that's so brilliant. You know, puberty is happening to kids, uh, or they're going through it rather, much younger. And I feel like, is it from a scientific standpoint, because of our exposure to all the endocrine disruptors. I mean, that's something that my husband and I extrapolate on. It's like, let's not use this body wash because it has this ingredient. And is that part of it? And then is it also uh, some part evolution? And are we evolved to have this happen? So the answer is probably maybe yes. Um, (laughs) we, We don't know. What we do know is that puberty has been happening increasingly early for a long time. The data that showed that puberty was no longer starting at 11 for girls and 11 and a half for boys, which was sort of the standard of what we knew post-World War II, the data that shifted that thinking came out in 1997. In 1997, we knew that girls were entering puberty at 10 instead of 11. In 2010, we knew that girls were entering puberty between the ages of eight and nine. So this is not new data, but it is new to the forefront. People just don't really think about it or talk about it. And Vanessa and I feel really strongly about getting it out into the world. 
the people who do those studies are asking the questions that you're asking. And the people who read those studies are asking the questions you're asking. And the answer is, we don't know, but there are a lot of drivers. And they include endocrine-disrupting chemicals, which do impact the way that estrogen and testosterone and the other sex hormones work inside the body, chronic stress, which clearly impacts the onset of puberty, but also there is probably a link to antibiotics, not just antibiotics that you take, but antibiotics that's used in feed for animals, um, antibiotics that ends up in soil, antibiotics. So yes, and, right? Oh my goodness. That's it's just so like mind-blowing to hear that. Yeah, it is. I, I will reassure you for a second, though. We love collecting friends in the world of puberty research. And one of the friends we have collected is Louise Greenspan, who is one of the leading researchers in earlier puberty. And Louise will say, we are not going to have kindergartners in puberty. This is not marching back so far that your kids who are living under your roof right now are going to be in puberty. She thinks we've hit a bottom. And I'm I'm just yeah. betting on Louise being right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay. That's that's very, very encouraging to hear. I want to talk about when when we were in grade school, you know, coming from an immigrant home, we still don't talk about this. <laughs> you know, I have three children. My parents are not going to ever talk to me about sex and they just magically divine intervention. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So puberty was definitely not discussed. And I feel like the only place and outlet and resource I had was, was at school. And then of course my peer groups and at school, I vividly remember in health class watching that seventies classic. Am I normal? Do you remember it? The worst title ever. Yeah. (laughs) Totally. Totally. So, you know, how has that changed and like what kind of programming are you putting out there to to teach kids about it? Because that was awkward and here you're calling it out. But <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, how are they teaching? How are you teaching now? Well, I mean, the first thing is to reassure anyone listening who also grew up in a home where it wasn't talked about. Like you get to do it differently. You get to chart your own course and create a different path for your family. And you turned out great. And as we all say about our parenting, we do the best we can with the information we have at the time. And I would add to that. And all of our cultural, social, ethnic baggage that comes with that, you know, that all informs how we choose to go about talking to our kids. And so We've talked to parents all over the country who are like, I didn't grow up with it. I don't know how to do it. And it's like, you just start and you just give it a shot. Unfortunately, in terms of school health ed, it's still not as complete and as expansive as we would hope. And it's, we've done episodes about this on our podcast, but it depends like not only state by state, but county by county, school district by school district. So for those of you wondering, it's best to actually reach out to your school district and find out what parameters they are following and whether they're meeting state standards in terms of what health and sex ed are being taught in their schools. Librarians love our work. They love Cara's books because often kids rely on books in libraries to get information they're not getting at home or they're not getting in the classroom. So another great thing to do is to find out what books are available in your local library, in the school library, so that if it's hard for you to have conversations with kids in your life, but you want them to get the information, go to the library together and check out check out a book together. We are actually writing a school curriculum with health, puberty, and sex ed, because we believe so strongly in how important it is for kids to get health education. It keeps them, really, it keeps them safer. So we're writing one because we think it's it's so critical. You know, Kanika, we give a lot of information in our newsletter on our podcast so that parents who are doing this at home, if their kids are in schools that aren't getting this information, can feel empowered to at least impart the information to their to their own kids in their own homes. 
right. just want to add to that, that one of the reasons that we're taking on this task is that we've taught this class many, many times over the years, and there's really nothing out there that's relatable and reliable. There's reliable, but when it's relatable and funny and fun and silly and lets kids laugh and lets a teacher laugh and acknowledges that a teacher might not have been trained to teach this and helps them and holds their hand through it, I, I haven't found that. And we've been in this in this sort of soup of puberty for so long that if it existed, we would have found it. So we're creating it. Yeah, amazing. And the fact that you have literature that middle schoolers can read. Oh, yeah. Kids want to learn. They want information. They want to understand the why and the how. Yeah, okay, they're sometimes grossed out by it, but gross becomes very interesting, increasingly mm-hmm. interesting as you go through grammar school and get into middle school. They're hungry for information. So when Vanessa talks about keeping kids safe, when we empower kids with knowledge and information, it literally keeps them safe. When kids know their anatomical body parts, and they can call their body parts by name. The data shows that those kids are far less likely to be the victims of child predators just by knowing their body parts. So again, to an audience of, of adults who are raising younger kids, start there. Start by naming parts of the body because it is an incredibly powerful thing. What it says to a predator is, this is a kid who talks to an adult in their life. I'm going to leave this kid alone. Right. Right. Wow. At what age do you um, break this down for them? And you're saying this is a penis, this is a vagina, like what age? I mean, we believe, you know, on the changing table with babies, you use the correct anatomical terminology with toddlers in the bath. Did you wash this? Did you wash that? And as kids get older, you know, into kindergarten and pre-K where they're navigating being in shared space with other kids, where they're navigating going to the bathroom on their own for the first time, where they're navigating, you know, pulling underwear up and down and wiping and all of those things, using the correct anatomical terminology. And on top of that, so the anatomy, as soon as you are talking to an, an infant or a baby, you use that terminology because it not only tells someone who could potentially be a predator, oh, this is a kid who is adults who's talking to them about their bodies and all of that. It also keeps them safe because if they have a pain somewhere or they're uncomfortable somewhere, they can say, oh, you know what? Something feels funny on my vulva or you know what, my penis, it doesn't feel good when I pee in my penis. Then when you go to the doctor, the doctor knows exactly what's going on with that kid because they're using correct terminology. We we know a pediatrician who was telling us they had a kid who kept referring to their pocketbook and someone was touching their pocketbook. And it turned out at someone not who should not have been touching their pocketbook. And it turned out the pocketbook was the family's euphemism for vulva and vagina. And it took them a long time to realize what was happening. Oh my goodness. Because it was, you know, it was the it was the physician who was hearing this and they don't know what the pocketbook is. So um, those are really important conversations. We know, we know, we know if you did not grow up using words like vulva and vagina and penis, it's hard. It is hard to start. And like we totally get it. And if until today you've been using pocketbook, you know, whatever. Oh, we have a list. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. A list. I mean, I have yeah. my language for that. And so yes. we have our own. Yeah, You have your own. But and sometimes, listen, sometimes a, a, a five-year-old boy is not going to call his testicles his testicles. He's going right. to call them his balls. Fine. But as long as he knows the right word ultimately, so yeah. that if he's in a situation where he needs to communicate to someone who's taking care of him, he needs to know that word. So it's never too late. The other great conversation that can start as young as a toddler is co- are conversations about consent. Yes. So consent, people immediately go to sex when they think about consent, right? Yes or no to sex. But consent is like a whole universe of teaching kids about permission to be touched or to touch someone else. But even like our friend Shafia Zaloum, who's a wonderful sex educator, uses a French fry example. Hey, can I 
can I take a French fry off your plate? They look really good as opposed to just grabbing a French fry off of somebody's Mm -hmm. plate, right? Mm -hmm. Or Mm -hmm. can I, can I play with your hair? It looks so pretty today. I want to play with your hair. Is that okay? You know, teaching kids to ask permission about things that have nothing to do with sexual activity and everything to do with just mutual respect is another great conversation that can start as young as toddlers. Speaking of consent and having these conversations, they really are so critical because of, you know, what we see happen around the country. And I want to touch on two events that have happened. Um, One is uh, the monster Larry Nasser and the fact that he had victims that were as young as nine, 10 years old years ago that did not feel comfortable or confident to go to their parents and tell them that this was happening. It makes your blood boil thinking about it. So how can we talk to our kids about that? Because I mean, I think at an elementary level, we know good touch, bad touch, but like... Yeah. I mean, it's the right question to be asking. It's not a gendered question. I will start there. Um, This is a conversation to have with all kids, regardless. I think one thing that Vanessa and I talk about a lot is how girls have been given the microphone on a lot of these topics. And that's a great thing. But everyone should be given the microphone on these topics because it's about safety of all kids. Uh, Our best advice is to approach every single conversation with your kids without judgment or shame. This is hard. This is hard. You will judge. You will judge something. You will judge it because you have your own personal history or because you watched a kid wrong your kid or whatever it is. And you'll just, but there's no judgment and there's no shame. And then you become a safe outlet. There is a way to practice bringing up topics like this and testing your own waters And when you get it wrong, Kanika, and you will, and we do, you go back to your kid (laughs) and you say, remember that thing I was talking about with the gymnasts and the coach and how I wanted you to always feel like if an adult was, was making you feel uncomfortable, you could always come talk to me. I think I did it wrong. I think I didn't say it in a way that was kind, or I didn't say it in a way that you could hear. I'm going to try again. I'm sorry I messed that up. I'm going to try again. Kids love to hear from the adults around them when they've gotten it wrong. And you have so many years to have so many conversations that there's lots of space for you to get it wrong. That's fine. It's totally appropriate. So try approaching things one way. And as your foot is being inserted into your mouth, you can remove your foot, take a break from the conversation, and then come back to it later and take it from a different vantage point. But these conversations about grooming and power are very, very important. One of the things that I like that the pediatricians do that my kids see is they explain to the kids what they're going to do. Like when they do an exam in the genital area, they ask their permission. They tell me what they're going to do, right? So what they're, what they're actually accomplishing is modeling for the kids what good consent seeking looks like. Right. And also parents can prepare their kids ahead of time and say, you're at an age where the pediatrician may, you know, look under your underwear to look at your genitals, to track how you're growing and changing. And they will ask my permission, but I want you to know, I know what they're going to do. They have my permission. There are very few people in the world who have permission to look there or touch there, but healthcare providers do. Every single one of those conversations models for kids, it is important that anybody gets consent to touch you, and there should be a reason why they're looking and touching, and it's not just like anybody gets that opportunity. Yes. Okay. Wow. That's great. How can we prepare them for the changes that they're undergoing because, because they are really young and, you know, it starts with like the smelliness and the hair. You know what it really starts with? It starts with a slamming door. It starts with an eye roll. (laughs) It starts very emotional. Even at eight or nine. Oh my, I can't wait to talk. I'm calling you on your kid's eighth birthday. I'm going to be like, happy birthday, Oh my God. I have to brace myself. You know, it's, um, 
<laughs> emotions and emotional swings, again, not gendered, they happen as a result of testosterone or estrogen or progesterone rising and falling in these very steep curves. These They surge up and surge down. And we all know what it feels like to have a hormonal surge. It doesn't feel good. You feel a little bit out right. of control, right? right? Your brain is deeply impacted by these hormones. Kids, they, they don't know to anticipate it. They've never felt this before. So now they're sort of um, victims of their home hormonal swings. And we ask them, how do they feel? Do they like it? And they say, oh, I do not know. I do not, do not, do not like it, right? Nothing about this feels good to me. But they can't help it at a certain point because it's biochemical. So my best advice about how do you help them anticipate what's going to shift and change is going to depend on your kid. If you have a kid who is totally future-oriented, and by the way, the young brain is typically not super future-oriented, okay? We could talk about the prefrontal mm -hmm. cortex not being developed until kids are almost 30, but the typical kid is not thinking about what's going to happen in five years, let alone in five months, let alone in five minutes, Okay. So if you've got a kid who's future oriented, you can start mapping out, oh yeah, these are some of the ways your body's going to change. But they know because they see you, you're an adult, you have an adult body, they have some sense of anticipation. So my best advice is take it as it comes. Anticipate okay. locally. As you start to see mood swings emerge, hey, I'm noticing you're getting moody. This is why, or I'm going to read a book about why, and then I'm going to explain it to you, or let's look it up together to understand why. When there is a breast bud growing, and usually it's one at a time, not two, which creates a whole breast cancer scare for everyone involved, mm -hmm. um, but it's completely typical and normal for that to happen. Hey, this is what's happening, and here's the path through breast development. I just want to tell you what's happening, and then you can come to me with any questions. But if you give them too much in advance, their brain isn't there. They can't hold on to it, right? <laughs> that makes sense. And I think they definitely are inquisitive and ask the questions and I can share an anecdote. So like my, my daughter and I talk a lot and there's, you know, like no privacy at all. So she's always in the bathroom when I'm in the bathroom and she's seen me change a tampon and the, you know, all of it. And she's like, what's happening? And I told her that, you know, it's a period and every month I bleed and she's like, oh no, that means that I'm going to have to bleed. And then, you know, she knew that her brothers weren't. She could also put two and two together, you know, girls or women who have the babies. Um, and so she's like, oh no, I'm going to have to bleed. And then they're going to have to cut my tummy open and I have to get, you know, like when I, when I, <laughs> when I get married and I have to have a baby. And so she is already like nervous about it. And it's just, you know, as much as it's funny, I think it's also like, it's not going to be a rude awakening for you. You know, if you already can conceptualize that this is going to happen, like, that's great. You know, it's not like a, you know, you're 15 and it's like, what's happening to my body? Yeah. I mean, we find that kids, what they do worry about, I mean, they do sometimes worry about pain or discomfort, right? Because they hear all the stuff about periods or pregnancy or, or delivery but they worry a lot about logistics. You know, mm. kids are very tactical. So they worry about like, I I'm sure you will get this question sometime in the next few years. Like, well, if I'm going to get my period, what happens if I get my period in school and I don't have anything with me? What do I do? That's a question we get all the time from kids. So that's a very logistical question. How do I, who do I go to? Who in school has period products? How do I handle if it goes through my pants? Yeah. Um, who can I talk to? So often we find the conversations with kids on the younger end are very much about like, who are your resources? What's your backup plan? What do you do? And the other thing that we like to do is really normalize for kids that everyone is going through something new, awkward, uncomfortable, unexpected. It's not just girls, even though our society often will just talk about the female side of things. But like, ask any guy who got an unexpected erection in math class in middle school, and he will tell you 
that was no fun. That was right. really uncomfortable. That was really un- embarrassing. Or any kid who's gotten a wet dream and woke up in a bed with, you know, a wet patch having no idea what it is. So guys also have some unexpected and uncomfortable stuff. And the more they understand that everybody goes through these, goes through these like pretty wacky experiences, the more they can have empathy for each other and the less they feel like it's just them. And it normalizes that everybody is going through this stuff. Yes. Yes. I love that you mentioned that. And Cara, I know you've um, made it a point to create safe spaces for boys and you're helping parents have those conversations. It's so, so important. Yeah. I mean, I think if we had to boil our mission down to one thing, it's making puberty more fun. If we had to boil it down to two things, it's making puberty more fun for everyone. Right. Because everyone, it's, Mm -hmm. if you're going to go through it and a hundred percent of people are going to go through it, it might as well be flip positive. Yeah, exactly. Can you do some role play with us on Vanessa's favorite um, thing? <laughs> oh, Vanessa's yeah. my favorite. And I'm going to let you ask the questions because you, you know, have a podcast, you have guests on all the time, and they've all asked you their questions. I want both of you to do it where these are the frequently asked questions from kids, and this is how a parent could handle it. So let's say I'm 11 okay. and I have. A couple friends who I know have their periods, right? Not everybody in school and not no one in school, but a couple friends have their periods and I've noticed. So I come home from school and I say, Cara's my mom. And I say, I am so stressed out because what if I get my period in school and I'm like gushing blood everywhere and I'm like sitting in class and it's like blood is flowing all over the floor and I don't know what to do. And I'm, I'm like so stressed and I don't know who to talk to. And I don't have any period products with me. What do I do? Vanessa, I'm so glad you asked me that question. So before I even answer it, I just want to say, I'm so glad. Can you give me a little context? Why are you asking? Did something happen? Cause these kids in class told me that when you get your period, it's like buckets and buckets of blood everywhere. And like, I am just so stressed. Oh, that's so helpful to know. Do you want to know something a little bit different from what you were told in class? Yes. When you get your period, and we can talk a lot about getting your period, we can look online together and we can read books together and we can talk a lot about it. But when you get your period, you do bleed. But did you know that you only bleed three tablespoons worth of blood over an entire week. So there's no buckets of blood. Now, you can bleed and it can come through your underpants and onto your pants, and that can feel really embarrassing. But there are no buckets of blood. I can promise you that there will not be blood dripping off your chair in school when you or anyone else gets your period. Does that make you feel better? Yes, but what do I do if I get my period? Like, who do I talk to? So that's where you start to move into a tactical or a logistical conversation, right? That's where you start talking about who you can go to in school, where the resources are, where are the pads kept. You talk about packing a bag to keep in your backpack or your locker that has some supplies and a clean pair of underwear and a clean pair of shorts. So you can then address what the real worry is, which is kind of the tactical stuff. Okay. And now what about for boys? What's like a burning question they have? How old are you? I am 11 and I am a younger sibling. I have young teenage siblings. Oh my God, mom, you'll never guess what happened in school today. What happened? Okay. Joey got a narb. Um, I want to hear about a narb, but first you have to tell me what a narb is because I'm not sure. It's a no reason boner. He was standing up at the front of class and it was so embarrassing for him and it was crazy and I knew it was going to happen because I had heard about it, right? I mean, we've talked about it, like it happened, so I knew it was going to happen. It was like, it was crazy and everyone was talking about it. How did he seem when it happened? 
oh, well, I mean, he was totally obviously embarrassed and he put his hands in his pocket and he was like, he was super embarrassed, but it was amazing because we went to recess and everyone was talking about it at recess and it was like, oh my God. I mean, you know, it was, it was incredible, mom. So did you know that not only one kid will get a NARB, to use your language, that it's actually really common for kids in puberty to get erections like spontaneously? And that might also happen to you, not just to your friends. So I'm wondering if maybe you could put yourself in his shoes and think about, you know, maybe how you might have reacted differently to his NARB? Have you thought about that? No. I mean, it was super funny. So I was like laughing like everyone else was laughing, but I I hadn't thought about it that way. But it's not going to happen to me. It's totally, there's no way it's going to happen to me. Um, So I can't promise you it will happen to you, but I would say there's a really, really high chance it'll happen to you. And I'm just wondering how you would feel if you were up at the board doing a math problem and you got a NARB and everybody was laughing at you. I would guess it didn't feel, wouldn't feel so great. And I would suggest maybe even talking to your older siblings and see if it ever happened to them or one of their friends, because they might have some information about having a little bit of empathy for some folks and what they're going through, even if you don't have to deal with it right this second. Perfect. Yeah. Kanika, do you have a scenario request for a role play? Ooh, yeah. I mean, you know, the age old, where do babies come from? Mm. Kanika, can I just tell you my story about that? Can <laughs> I, I'm just, just going to leapfrog the role play and tell you what really happened in my house, because I think your listenership will appreciate it since it happened squarely in this age zone. I have two kids who are now 18 and 20. And when my daughter was in the fourth grade, she asked me how she came out. She knew about pregnancy and she asked, how do you get out? And Vanessa and I talk a lot about this on our podcast and we talk about being clear and not fear-mongering. So I explained that when I gave birth to her, she came out through my vagina. As you can imagine, this freaked her out. Her brother was listening. He was in second grade and he was listening and he actually interrupted. He wanted to make sure he wasn't pooped out. Actually, I think he was a little excited at the notion <laughs> that he might have been pooped out or farted out because he was a second yeah. grade boy. Yeah, yeah. And um, no, I said, no, no, you weren't. And um, and she, my daughter was never a great faller asleeper. Once asleep, she was a great sleeper, but she had a lot of trouble falling asleep every night. She's a kid who couldn't turn her brain off. And that night, after I told, gave her the answer, it was probably like 7 p.m. She got into bed, turned off her lights, and went to sleep faster than I've ever seen her do that in her entire life. Like, shut the world off. I don't want to know anything more. The next morning, there's a little tap on my shoulder, and she's standing in front of me, pitch black, and says, if that's how I got out, how did I get in? <laughs> mm, of course. Isn't that an amazing? And I thought like, oh it my was gosh. such a moment because she let me have the conversation with her in a way that was paced right for her. And I think that's the key teaching to all of this, which is when you get questions about sex, they're not always asking about the entire you know, from start to finish where babies come from, sometimes they're asking very specific, very narrow questions. And if they don't make them specific and narrow for you, ask them to narrow it. If Vanessa says to me, what's sex? My first answer is going to be, that's such an interesting question. What makes you ask? On the flip side, two of my kids, so I have four kids who are now 13, 15, 17, and 20. But when the two middle ones were like 10 and seven, and we were sitting at the dinner table and they said to me, so like, how did you make us? Right. And we, we were a family that were, we were using vagina and penis and all of those words already. And so like, how, how did you make us? And I said, well, there's a lot of different ways babies are made. 
But the way, one way babies are made is that a person puts a penis inside a vagina and the sperm comes out of the penis and meets the egg and the egg gets fertilized and grows in the uterus. And they took one look at me, got up from the dinner table <laughs> and said, that's disgusting. And they left the room. And that was it. Like I gave them information. They right. had asked for the information. I gave it to them. I kept it very simple very factual and they got what they needed did not enjoy the information and left the room i have since had kanika a hundred million conversations <laughs> with my kids about all of this stuff but it was like that was it that was all i was going to get they didn't come back with more questions there was no follow-up there was no tap on the shoulder the next morning that was like that was what they got and I had to be at peace with that for the time being and then circle back, you know, when they got a little bit older. And I bet if if they were sitting here with us and you asked them this question, they could like remember an exact They would have a lot to say. They would have a lot to say. Yes. Yeah. They always have a lot to say, but yes, they would have a lot to say. Okay. So moving on to porn, I wanted to, you know, find out when they discover it now that we are in a digital age and then how we, I don't know, of course we have to like talk about it and then curb it and all of it. In our book, we have chapters about everything that happens during puberty. And one of the topics that we cover is porn. And at the end of every chapter, we have an essay written by an 18 to 22 year old about their experience with that specific piece of puberty. I think Vanessa, you would be really well suited to share a story that com- that shows up in our book about porn. This particular essay was actually written by one of my children. <laughs> wow! So if you're wondering, he will not mind my sharing. It's a it's actually a, a funny story, and it's not deeply personal to him. But essentially, he tells the story of at my parents' house where he spent lots of time with his cousins. You know, many of us spend summer weekends with extended family or friends in less supervised settings. And the remote control for the television at my parents' house was an iPhone. And the cousins would spend a lot of time on summer weekends using the iPhone as a search engine rather than as a TV remote. And they spent, apparently, a lot of time searching up uh, naked pictures of celebrities. My son tells the story of having, you know, found himself on his own. He was, I think, about seven. So again, this is not a conversation to have with 15-year-olds. It is a conversation to have with 15-year-olds, but it's not a conversation to wait until kids are 15. And he tells a story of searching up, I think it was Katy Perry Naked or something like that, and finding all of these doctored images, you know, photoshopped images of Katy Perry's head on someone else's naked body, and thinking it was absolutely hilarious, also knowing he was doing something he wasn't supposed to. My husband came to find him, and um, he quickly, you know, clicked out of the whatever it was, iPhone 4, whatever it was in those days. And my husband then picked up the remote and discovered that he had been searching up naked pictures. This is a complicated thing, right? Because a parent's instinct is to flip out and be really angry and upset with a kid because it's so shocking. Like, this is your little baby and what are they doing looking at naked pictures? But, you know, the fact is they are curious and they have a right to be curious. People have been curious since the beginning of humankind. But because of the digital age, access to all sorts of content and information is not as gated as it as it should be, um, or as it has been. Um, it's not like a little ripped corner of a Playboy magazine. You know, the internet is a gateway to all sorts of video and uh, still imagery of naked people and sexual activity. So what my husband did not do was flip out or scream at my kid or ground him or tell him he was a horrible person or a disgusting person. But he did get curious and, you know, ask some questions about, huh, you look like you're pretty interested in this topic. Tell me, tell me what you're interested in. Is this the first time you've seen it? What other kinds of stuff have you seen? He might have said stuff like, 
you know, this isn't really Katy Perry. These are people using technology to create images of people without their permission. And that's important to know. You know, if it was a video of people actually having sex, right, which is now what most people think of as porn in the, in the modern age, you want to let kids know that this is not real life. These are not relationships. These are people performing. Many of these people are being paid to do this to the porn conversation. But the most important thing is that if a kid has stumbled upon it or someone has shown it to them, they're not a bad person. They're not a bad kid. They're just being curious and they're using the technology at their disposal. So make sure they know they see anything or hear anything or shown anything. They can always come to you with any question. And our recommendation, Kanika, is that these conversations start like around 10 when a lot of kids, if they don't have phones yet, they have iPads or are on computers playing games. Um, their friends might have phones. They might be riding the bus on their own and being shown or exposed stuff. And we do know that the average age for porn exposure for kids in this country, kids, not boys, kids of all genders, is about 12 years old. Mm-hmm. So if you haven't yet had the conversation at 12, it is 100% time to have the conversation about porn. Oh oh my God. I'm convinced. (laughs) (laughs) Call us when you're ready and we will, we'll walk you through it. Don't worry. I'm just going to be like, guys, we're going to have a chat with some friends of mine. (laughs) 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 It's like school. So this show is called That's Total Mom Sense. And I love asking my guests their mom sense moment. It's a time where you just trusted your intuition and it it didn't steer you wrong. I, I live in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is like so many other cities where a corner of the educational universe that becomes incredibly competitive very, very young. And I am a believer in helping kids love to learn and kids learn in lots of different ways and kids have success in learning in lots of different ways. As a parent, my intuition was um, very clearly steered me away from burning my kids out young because all I cared about was that they would continue to love to learn and to feel like they could contribute to the world. And what it meant was I made some decisions that looked a little bit, that, that were a little controversial at times, but in the long run, my kids now in their at the end of their high school careers and in their college time um, they're joyful learners and it's a sort of a 30,000 foot example and not a specific example but my gut was to make sure they knew that learning was a marathon and not a sprint and i think that was the right call well, mine is i would say like a little microcosm of actually what we talk about in the book and every day, all day, which is what to do when a kid comes home and something doesn't seem right. And I'm thinking of a particular example when one of my kids, who's like my quiet kid, I have three loud kids and one quiet kid, and he came home and was just like, not something was off. And my first instinct was to be like, oh my God, are you okay? What's going on? Tell me what happened. Was somebody mean to you? Did you fail a test? Like, I need to know everything right now. And instead of doing that, which was what I really wanted to do, I just said, hey, dude, you know, you don't seem yourself right now. And I just, I'm not going to pry, but I just want you to know that I'm here if you want to talk about whatever's going on for you. Like, I'm available. And a few hours later, he circled back and came into the kitchen and was ready to talk. Listen, it doesn't always happen at all. It doesn't always happen the same night. Sometimes it's a week later or a month later. But by recognizing my first instinct was not the total right approach and giving myself a minute to let my second instinct kick in, I ended up having a, you know, a quote unquote successful moment with my kid because he had the space to process and to come back to me. That's wonderful. I I love that. And I think our relationships with our kids are ever evolving. 
And that's what's so cool. It's like, you know, in the beginning, you're kind of their caregiver and then you turn into their confidant and you have to be able to navigate how the conversations change over time. And it's, it's just the coolest thing. There's not a relationship in our life that's like this one. You both were awesome. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your insights with us and making it fun and not awkward. And, you know, for my audience out there, definitely check out the Puberty Podcast. And I know as I was doing my research, I loved hearing your appearance on Gwyneth Paltrow's Goop. And it was just, you guys are entertaining and informative and all the things. So I'm excited that my audience gets to learn more about the two of you and how you can help families make these transitions and these, you know, phases of life a little simpler. Thank you both for joining me. Thank you. Thanks, Kanika. It was so fun. Well, that interview wasn't so awkward, was it? Definitely check out the book that was written by the guests you heard today, Dr. Kara Natterson and Vanessa Kroll Bennett called This Is So Awkward, Modern Puberty Explained. I think, you know, this is something that we all are going to be faced with. So as they said, if you are a parent of young kids, brace yourself because you're going to have these conversations a lot earlier than you expected. And if you have teenagers or if you're an empty nester, I think this will be an inspiration to keep communicating with your kids or start if you haven't already, because we are cycle breaking as we go. And it's important to be completely transparent with our kids. They're going to learn about the ways of the world from their peer groups and from society. So it's much better that all of the value systems and what matters to you is imparted in the home first. You can check out my interview, which was so fun on uh, YouTube. Just type in that's total mom sense and Dr. Cara Natterson and Vanessa Carl Bennett, and it'll come up. And you can visit my website where all of these podcast episodes and articles and information live. That's totalmomsense.com. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review that's total mom sense wherever you listen Apple, Spotify good pods anywhere. We appreciate your feedback and it really helps with the algorithms. And most importantly, those who you know will glean some insights from the interviews that we feature here. And you're you're really hooking a friend up when you're sharing this show with those you love and care about. You can email me show topics or guests who you think have to have to be on the show. Just write to me at thatsotalmomsense at gmail.com. And remember, always trust your mom sense and dad sense, especially when it comes to the tough conversations. Stay strong, super parents. I'll see you next time.